Well, hello, everyone. First of all, Steve is with me here. Steve, hello. Hello. Uh, we will both appear as my voice. Uh, we So, uh, very exciting because we launched on, on Friday. We got, we are, uh, the, the first Oxide rack came off the line and was, was crated up. Uh, and uh, it was really exciting. Uh, today in the office, in fact, you may hear us uh, chewing a little bit here, Adam. There you go. As, as Steve shakes, a, uh, a a package showed up in the office today from nuts.com. And like, did you, oh my God, what, did we accidentally order something from nuts.com? Pretty good size box, pretty heavy. Uh, good size box. Uh, how heavy would you say it was? It was on the order of about five pounds it was actually seven pounds according to this invoice that I how many gift cards is that that's the question that's exactly right (laughs) like christmas morning right uh and inside uh and this is you know what we have we have said from the beginning that uh one of the uh terrific things that we have enjoyed as a company is the number of folks out there who've been really supportive of what we've been doing uh and uh, it's really meant a lot to us, even those folks that we know that for whatever reason aren't going to be, aren't necessarily Oxide customers, but they've been supporting us from afar. Uh, and that's been really meaningful for us. And indeed, this package from nuts.com was from one such supporter with the gift message, way to go. Congrats to you all. This is for everyone who thought you were nuts. So thank you very much. You know who you are. We really appreciate it. Is that end of message? Uh, it did say, uh, this is not end of message. Uh, if you'd like me to, I will read the end of the message. Just curious. Okay, it's just a little more barbed. This is for everyone who thought you were nuts. M dash, fuck them. I guess that's what you, were, <laughs> you really wanted me to get to them. No, I was, you know, I, I, no, no, uh, yeah, right. Um, no, thank you very much. Uh, and uh, yeah, we did have uh, definitely some people who thought we were uh, a little bonkers, but um, we are uh, very, very excited to hit this milestone. Uh, of course, we've got. Um, a long way to go from our perspective in terms of all the things that we want to go build out on, on top of this. And uh, we're super excited. And, um, you know, I, I was even, I was kind of debating whether we were going to tweet something out on Friday. I guess we, we you and I were kind of, um, I don't know, maybe it was never a debate in your mind whether we should tweet something out as a company. But yeah, I mean, it felt like yeah, after after this long of a road. And I, it, it, it was a bit surreal on Friday to go from where we knew we were going to be, but to actually have that system loading on a truck and, and shipping out. It was surreal. And in part because we've been working so hard for so long, and I really did liken it to, uh, to a summit uh, when, you're, when you're climbing a mountain and you have so many false summits and you just get to the point where you're just like grinding. And then all of a sudden you can be surprised by like, oh God, like that's, that's the summit. We've actually got this thing. Uh, got this thing done. So it was been, um, of course, again, we've got a lot of, a, a lot of work to do and a lot of, uh, a lot of software that we will continue to evolve, but, uh, but the, but the hardware is, uh, is done. Um, well, there, there were there, exciting. a lot of people out there that were waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting. And so I think just as a way to, to note that we had begun shipping commercial systems, it was worth a quick mention. And, and there were some naysayers out there. There were some naysayers. Um, I, you know, I, I don't think I'm going to. This person deleted their tweet, so I'm not going to name them. But there is someone who, who said they were going to eat their shoe if if Oxide ever shipped anything. I mean, and, we've been uh, holding on to that. I mean, three years ago, two years ago. I mean, we've been holding on to it like uh, a tweet. They may, they may have deleted it. all of this. Us, yeah, <laughs> yeah, they may have deleted it. It's true. Yeah, I know, Adam. We have. We kind of like put it up in the locker room, you know, as the, the, the this is. Uh, to their credit, they came back forward and 
had noted it and and is are now offering up a case of beer. Yeah. And like not to us. They were talking about like, hey, I know at, at this conference I was saying these guys weren't gonna ship. Apparently, Apparently they were saying it all over the place. All over the place. Exactly. A lot of checks were written. <laughs> exactly. Uh, but uh, that was fun. So um, I think Adam, we were talking about spending today, going through the so the hacker news thread um, was uh, filled with a lot of delightful support. Um, also some questions, and then also just because because I uh, called out Hacker News for what a supportive community is. Of course, Hacker News has got to bring has got to be the most orange site, and uh, there were definitely some comments that were a little bit trollish. We'll try not to spend too much time on those, but we also can't get out of here without getting some of those. So. Yeah, I thought I'd go through some of the questions in an order that seemed reasonable to me. Um, I do want to pause and then just say, you know, I know congratulations to us all, congratulations to the Oxide team, but I feel like I'd be remiss to not saying congratulations in particular, Brian and Steve, because like you started the thing, you had the vision, you raised the money, you assembled the team. So um, you know, I just don't want it to go unsaid that you guys should feel a, a tremendous amount of pride in what we, the whole team, have put together. But um, but thanks to you guys. I think um, that, you know, yeah, I appreciate that, but I think you can see, speak on behalf of Steve that like it feels it is such a comprehensive team effort that it's almost like it, I mean, we were just saying today it feels like we have a colleague of ours who started in January and it's felt like she's been here for <laughs> the whole the whole journey the whole journey yeah. I, I feel yeah it, 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 it it's is. it's hard to remember for most folks on the team like that they weren't there from the very beginning which. Yeah. Right, in part because we needed every single one of them to ship this thing. They're like, because we would have been completely screwed without every single one of them. So, uh, yeah. So, yeah. No, thank you. But thank you, though. Uh, thank you, and uh, it's it's been it really been exhilarating. It's a lot of fun. So, um, there's a general category of, of kind of what is oxide, and I don't know if you guys have been to a seder, but one of the traditions in a seder. Is, or one of the parts of the Seder is talking the, the story of the four children. Uh, one of the children is the one who doesn't know how to ask the question, so I'm going to ignore that child. But there are there are three other children. There's the simple child who asks the question in a simple way. There's the wise child who asks the, the question about, you know, what is this in a more sophisticated way. And then there is the wicked child. So we're going to start with the simple child. Because uh, we got a comment um, saying congrats to the team after hearing about Oxide for years since the beginning of the company and repeatedly reading different iterations of the landing page. I still don't know what the product actually is. <laughs> is a hypervisor host? Maybe. So I can host VMs on it and a network switch so I can switch stuff. So why don't we start there? What is this thing anyway? Yeah. Yeah. What do we build? So it, it it's a, a question we've definitely gotten a lot because for a while we had a couple pictures on a website that were all hardware centric and folks had a sense that we were building some sort of a computer, but that was about it. Or we're a firmware company. That's the other thing you get a lot of. It's like, are you just doing firmware? It's like, well, yes. And yeah. Or I think a particular VC that was like, in a, you know, if you're doing firmware, right. you might want to invest. Um, and the difficulty is that we're doing, we're doing probably eight different kind of products uh, designed together into one, but but fundamentally, what we're aiming to go build is a, a a product that allows the rest of the market that runs on-premises IT access to cloud computing, and that's what we're that's what we're we're aiming for from the beginning. Is we are big believers in cloud computing. We think about cloud computing not as renting someone else's computers, but as having 
abstractions that allow you to consume large pools of infrastructure resources to deploy and run software. And the, the kinds of systems that cloud hyperscalers have in their own data centers look nothing like the hardware and software that folks that are running on-prem IT have access to. And so we are building a computer. This computer is at rack scale and it comes complete with the innovations that the hardware hyperscalers have built for themselves and a complete software set that allows you to expose cloud computing services to your users on-prem. You know, that, that is a great, that's a great yep. segue to what I'll, what I'll describe as the wise child. I got a couple of these. One says, it's like on-prem AWS for devs. I don't understand the use case, but the hardware school says one. The other <laughs> says, uh, I don't understand the business opportunity for Oxide at all. It doesn't make sense to me. However, if they're aiming at companies parachuting out of the cloud back to data centers and on-prem, then it makes a lot of sense. It's possible that the price comparison is not comparable with computing devices simply, anyway, and so on. So um, I think a lot of the premise there being, isn't everyone in the cloud? Yeah. Why would anyone run anything outside of the public cloud? Isn't Jeff Bezos going to own and operate every computer on the planet? And our belief, of course, is no, is that elastic infrastructure is great. And just as Steve said, that shouldn't be cloistered to the public clouds. And there are lots of good reasons to run on-prem. Uh, and in fact, we're so deep into the public cloud revolution that most of the bad reasons to run on-prem have evaporated. And if you are, I, you know, there is there's something kind of lindy about, the, to, to use an overly trendy term, about those that are on-prem, that if you're running on-prem in 2023, there are probably some good reasons for it. And those good reasons are around uh, regulatory compliance, or they're around security, or they're around risk management, or they're around latency, or, and this is kind of what the, 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 the comment was getting to, they're around economics. And as it turns out, if you're going to run a lot of compute, you may want to own some of it, um, as opposed to renting it all the time. And, you know, being in the, in the, Public cloud is, is you know, kind of in an Airbnb, and you know there there can uh, some upsides in, in Airbnb, um, but uh, or you're renting an apartment, and you know maybe the Airbnb, maybe the Airbnb is like is that Lambda or is that the hotel room? I guess we got the, the oh, <laughs> yeah, yeah right room service with with Lambda, and then you're kind of but you, ultimately you know you're renting can make a lot of sense, but once you get to a certain size, uh, it really makes sense to own, and that's that's our big belief. Yeah. And to Steve's point earlier, the, the cost of owning is, um, you know, ex explodes with all the operational costs that the developers then have to onboard, where they don't get to just provision VMs with an API, they have to like file tickets and so forth. That's right. Exactly. It. Yeah. And um, I think, I, I mean, just to, to drive the point home, you've got, I think it was Andy Jassy, who at the time was running AWS, was on stage at reInvent in 2021. And he was describing the opportunity for AWS, which in 2021, I think everyone, certainly just to ask any VC, everyone was running in the public cloud or was going to be running in the public cloud shortly. And Andy had said that 95% uh, of IT infrastructure was running outside of the public cloud. To underscore the opportunity for AWS, I think what it highlights is just how big the on-premises IT infrastructure footprint is and that Public cloud is going to grow very, very large, continue to grow very, very large. The, the need for on-premises IT infrastructure is going to remain very big. 
And as more things move onto the internet, continue to get larger itself. And, you know, uh, and Tranek has got a good uh, comment in the chat here, Adam, saying, hey, the way my colleague is asking, so does this mean that we can actually have access to this kind of compute in Eastern Europe or Asia? And we absolutely, I mean, I think that's the, you know, whether you want to put that as kind of regulatory compliance, because certainly there are a lot of, of in-country regulations around data movement and so on, or often just latency. It's like, actually, you know what, I'd rather not hit U.S. East from... From you know when I, from across an ocean or what have you, or the, the, so there are a lot of reasons why one wants to have your own local compute in country, and we absolutely see that. And again, we are the, our belief is purely that you shouldn't have to make these trade-off decisions. Yeah. If right. if cloud if the benefits of cloud computing, namely faster, easier access for developers to get their jobs done, and lower overhead for operators to run highly available infrastructure, like if if those are benefits that are shared, which we have come across kind of everyone, big company to small company do share those, the, the, a desire for those benefits, then you should have the freedom to choose, do I want to rent it or do I want to own it? Do I want to run it in someone else's data center or run it in my own data center? And it's kind of a dichotomy right now that, that, that you have to make this trade-off. So that takes us to what I'm going to Characterize is the wicked child here. Uh, so another comment, and, and it's pretty long, so I'm not going to read it uh, in its entirety, but there's lots to unpack as this. He says, uh, somebody help me understand the business value. All the tech is cool, but I don't get the business model. It seems deeply impractical. Uh, based on blogs and Twitter and Mastodon, they put a lot of effort into perfecting these weird EE side quests. They're not making real new hardware, no new CPU, no new fabric, etc. I am skeptical any customers will notice or care and would have not noticed had they used off-the-shelf hardware power setups. So you have this ultra bizarre customer. Is it this somebody is the wicked world? This is the, <laughs> someone someone who wants their own servers but doesn't mind VMs, doesn't need to migrate out of the cloud, but wants this instead of whatever hardware they manage themselves now. Who will buy a rack at a time, who doesn't need any hard, custom hardware and willing to put up with whatever off-the-beaten-path difficulties are going to occur? Who is this? Even the poster child of needing on-prem, the CIA is on AWS now. I don't get it. It just seems like a bunch of geeks playing with VC money. Oh, boy. I even you said, like, I'm not going to read this whole thing. And yeah, how long was it? Yeah, I feel like you... Oh, uh, oh there's more. It was yeah, longer. More. It was longer. It was longer <laughs> than that. Yeah. Okay, so, I, I mean, boy, where do you want to start? I, uh, first of all, just because... Yeah, sorry. The funniest thing I think to me about this, I I appreciate skepticism, but when people come at it from a like, therefore I know that no one will buy this is very different than like, I don't understand this because I'm not in this space. Like I think yeah. a lot of people are skeptical about the business model because they've just never dealt with this area before. And so, sure. you know, they naturally are like confused. But I think the funniest thing about this comment is it's on a picture of someone who bought a rack from us. So being like, no one, no customers could possibly exist in response to like a photo of a customer having purchased a thing is just kind of like inherently a little funny to me. <laughs> yeah, right. So there's that. There is the, and you know, I, I did kind of blow a gasket on EE side quests, Adam. Yeah, on I this thought about figuring that out, but I knew I couldn't. No, you can't. We, you gotta, I, I, and you know, I think the double E's, maybe had a better sense of humor about this than I did. I, I definitely, we all as a team have worked really, really hard, but the, the double E's have been, I mean, have been extraordinarily 
So, I mean, again, everyone has worked really hard on this, but boy, if there's any team to accuse of going on side quests, it's like there's been no, like, what are we talking? And I did have like, I did have a follow up comment. I did like, it was funny because in the internal chat, I'm like, I really have to reply to this comment. And immediately people feel it's like their responsibility to be like, why don't you say the comment in here where it's safe as opposed to like, <laughs> I don't know what people think I'm, I'm going to say. Write write, write it down. Right. Exactly. I feel like this is to me before you say it out loud. <laughs> right. Exactly. And I'm like, look, I just, and I did try to, you know, I, I tried to write the shortest possible reply to that, which is really just like, what a double side quests are we talking about there have been no double e side quests i do think that uh it is really really hard to go build all of this and we have been talking about all of the and we have believed strongly in being transparent about all of the details in building this thing i think i think they're extraordinarily technically interesting i think that they are broadly hidden people don't talk about them that's part of the reason we talk and so it's like no, sorry. The the EEs are not on a side quest. You yourself, dear listener, may be on a side quest when you listen to us talk about them. It may be for you a side quest, um, and it may be for you interesting to hear about something, just as it's been interesting for me and Steve, for you and Adam, for you, Dave, to learn about these aspects of the system that we just really haven't thought about before. But all of it has been actually essential for delivering the artifact i just really want to be unequivocal about that well and and it's uh, uh, for a bunch of these it's like oh we'll just go pose that same question to a hyperscaler it's like oxide why'd you build your own switch it's right well that double e side quest that double e side quest right it's and, like, and then you go you know and 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 folks from aws will talk about you know building their own switch being seminal to them actually kind of turning the corner for running through cloud infrastructure services and it's maddening. Yeah, and I think that you know, and this also gets Adam to you know part of the origin for a bunch of us here, especially coming from the software side, in terms of like why and and maybe one way to kind of uh, phrase the wicked child's question in the most generous possible way is why can't you just do this on commodity hardware? And uh, trust us, we tried. I mean, that's what we did. That's our life before Oxide is trying really really hard actually to do it on commodity hardware and the and you know adam you you and i were at sun back in the day and we you know where we really believed in this kind of full hardware software integration and then we kind of you know if you talk about a side quest i, we sp I spent you know 10 years nine years at a public cloud computing company attempting to build reliable robust elastic infrastructure on commodity hardware and you can kind of do it a little bit but you can't do it at scale. And then there are a whole bunch of things that you just cannot do. And you actually, and the, the belief, kind of the, the, the fundamental technical belief that we came to was we actually need to have both hardware and software together to fully deliver true elastic infrastructure to the end user. And I got to say, now, three and a half years into this, having built this thing, uh, I feel absolutely unequivocal on that. I mean, that was, I, I would say we had a pretty strong hunch going in, pretty strong belief going in, but um, believe that more strongly than ever that you need both hardware and software together to deliver domestic infrastructure. Yeah, Brian, I, I've been at arm's length from a lot of this stuff and, and exposed a lot of it on, on this show, but is it fair to say it, a lot of it was kind of all or nothing? That is to say, we couldn't sort, sort of have a root of trust and an A-speed uh, BMC or something like that, that uh, 
there absolutely. wasn't sort of a way to split the baby on this one. There, there was no way to split the baby. And then this is like actually a big challenge that we have had just as a company is what is the minimum viable product? I mean, we're a startup. You want to actually have, you want to have the minimum viable product. Like that's a good idea. The problem with this is that the minimum viable product is really, really big. And ex- Adam, you're exactly right. There's no way to, ju- and I mean, there have been companies that have tried to deliver just a slice and it's really hard to succeed <laughs> for reasons that are because you only delivered a slice of what you need and no one wants to buy the slice. They want to buy the full solution. So it is, uh, it, it, you really need to do the whole thing. And I think, you know, one of the things, one of the big lessons that we had um, early on is you know, we kind of had this idea that we'd be able to, and I, again, I hate bringing this up again because I just so hate the number of times I said this aloud that we were going to quote unquote tweak reference designs. And the, you did the, say that kind of a lot. Okay, you really did not need to back <laughs> me up on that. I mean, really could have just sat that one out. I mean, it could have been, I just did not need the, yeah, no, I know I said it a lot. I said it a lot, and I, I maybe I don't know, maybe I was, I guess I was hopeful, but the once you, I mean, just the act of getting rid of the BMC reference design is out. Like you, every single reference design that that A speed BMC is so entrenched into every reference design that the second you get rid of that thing, you're like yeah, you're on your own, and you're on your own, and you're in. By the way, nobody does it that way. You're in absolute like bonkers territory. And, but boy, again, having done it now, there is so much, I mean, we control the system to such a deep level. And there are things that are just super natural for us, uh, um, super space natural, <laughs> um, that, that are very natural for us. There's so much supernatural about the way There's so many the ghosts and poltergeists in the system yeah. that we have. Yeah, no, uh, the, the there are so many things that are very natural for us. So, I mean, as an example, I had a um, I was talking to a someone who deploys a lot of infrastructure, a lot of physical infrastructure, and uh, in particular, he was like, "Can you just tell me that you can monitor the power draw on the fans?" I'm like, sure, absolutely. We know exactly how much. I mean, for we know that actually in a couple of different dimensions. But yes, we absolutely know how much the fans are drawing. It's like, okay, thank God, because let me describe this bug I had for you where. A, a cascade of firmware bugs from what, the, the HPE in this case, but it could be easily Supermicro or Dell. But I had a, a cascade of bugs where the 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 ILO, which is their BMC, was mistakenly was using the draw of the CPU to determine what to do with fan speed, um, and and for other bugs, basically, it had to do that. And he had a spiky workload, and what would happen is the workload would spike. And they would see the current inrush, and they would do what feels like the conservative thing, which is crank the fans, and then they would kind of slowly decay that fan speed. And the problem is that the workload would spike with some regularity, not enough regularity to actually really seriously warm up the part, but enough regularity for for the ILO to crank the fans and leave them cranked. And what he talked about a side quest. What he had gone on was like, I just wanted to determine how much power is going into the fans. That's it. And he ultimately got to the answer, which was galling. And he was across his entire infrastructure. It was like hundreds of kilowatts that he was burning on this particular bug. The um, But it was excruciating to just determine the draw of the fans. And this is the kind of example where that decision is made so far away from the system software that actually has insight into what's going on from a workload perspective 
that there's no way to just like tweak a design to answer that question. You really need to kind of start with a clean sheet of paper. And that's the kind of thing that we've been able to do that is easy for us. I mean, it is easy for us to tell you exactly where the draw is going because we, at every juncture, we have picked components that allow us to write the software, that allow us to query it, to understand what's going on, and ultimately correlate that with what you're actually running in the hypervisor, in the control plane. We can actually get you to that highest level question, which is, what workload is inducing this? Where, how, it, which is a question I know, Adam, you and I have talked about this over the years, that it's kind of galling that we as software engineers can answer the question of what is the draw of this workload? Like how much power is this workload consuming? We as a, as a discipline have not been able to answer that question. We have not been able to answer that question because of all of these sedimented layers that you can't cut across. And so you really do need, you can't do that a little bit. You need to do the whole thing. And because no one can answer those questions, then a lot of people don't, aren't aware of the fact that you've got, you know, up to 20% of power in data centers getting hoovered up into fan fan performance and and running the cooling systems in these in, in systems, which is galling. I mean, you should not have that kind of inefficiency for moving air in the data center. And that takes away from how much CPU you can get in there, DRAM storage, and, uh, and, and instrumentation is huge. But I think one other question, in addition to what that person is asking, which is, uh, why can't you do this, is should you do this? Because I think that's you know the, the, uh, one of the questions that a lot of the companies we have talked to uh, have asked themselves is like, why are we in the business of building a bespoke private cloud? Right. Our customers don't know we do it. They would be aghast if they realized how much of our team is responsible and, and fully subscribed for dealing with server vendors and storage vendors and software licensing and integration and maintenance and upkeep and firmware updates and warranty dealing with warranty and part replacement. And, and that's assuming everything works. That's assuming everything works. And like, what if we could take that 500 person team and point them at doing things that our customers do care about? And the, that's, you know, th that's the realization that a lot of folks are having once they have moved a certain set of their workloads to the public cloud is how do we get much, much, much more efficient on-prem? And I, I think it, it becomes harder and harder to justify wanting to go build your own kind of bespoke on-prem private cloud. It's interesting because, Brian, as you were describing it, even a single server is really this uh, cacophony of different vendors, um, you know, all rolled up into a single piece, in, into a single box. But then, you know, Steve, from your perspective, you've also got a bunch of vendors in the large software and hardware. So if there is some problem, get a bunch of vendors, uh, none of whom really is is uh, incentivized to own up to the problem. There's a lot of finger pointing. Oh, absolutely. And this is true. Yeah, it's certainly true across devices or across a DC. It is true within the box. And I, I mean, Dell bluntly is infamous for for switching parts underneath the same part number. And, you know, I didn't even know that Toshiba made hard drives until they were in our data center inducing a, a performance problem. And it's like, I assume we were running HGST. It's like, no, 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 now you're running Toshiba drives. And it's like the, the inability to kind of control that. I mean, it's, it's remarkable how, uh, w w I mean, what a cacophony it is. Um, it, and this is, you know, you use Timothy Roscoe's term, Adam, is congealed. All of this congealed. 
And that's the problem. And it's got to actually, we actually want to have it be designed. And that's what we, uh, what we have endeavored to do. There's actually a great tweet like a year or two ago uh, where someone who filed a ticket and they had some issue with their Dell VMware install, which at the time Dell owned VMware and had said, uh, perfect, I have an open ticket with VMware and Dell and they have to work together on my support ticket. I feel like I'm dealing with my divorced parents. Exactly. And then just like expand that to, you know, eight vendors instead of two. Yeah, it, it, it's brutal. Uh, and, you know, there's a, uh, Adam, there's a good question in the chat about uh, just in terms of that kind of rack scale efficiency. I'm not sure what kind of, what order we want to take these things on. I'm not sure, sure where this. The chicken has become, but um, slots yeah, in. You know, given part of the goal of rack scale design is power efficiency through fans and backplane power bus power. Can you tell us about the approximate percentage improvement in power efficiency over a rack full of commodity hardware? Yeah, and I think that, and this kind of dovetails into another, I think, theme on those Hacker News questions, which is like, yeah, but like, th there's nothing left on the table. But you're talking about one tenth of one percent was one of the comments. It's like you're definitely not talking about numbers that small. And the reason is this: when you take a clean sheet of paper from the rack level. There are a whole bunch of things that you can go do that are actually not possible at the 1U, 2U. And part of it is indeed like the tyranny of that 1U enclosure. So when you, when every server vendor is trying is is incentivized to deliver you the maximum density in the smallest unit, they give you a 1U or a 2U that's kind of loaded with compute. The problem is that you actually don't even get to to a full rack before you've tapped your rack out from a power perspective. And what you've done is now you've got a rack that's like a runt of a rack. You've got a rack that's only like a quarter of the way up or a third the way up. And it is screaming. It, and I mean that acoustically, it is screaming because those small fans struggle to move air. So those small fans are operating at 15,000 RPM, 20,000 RPM more to move air. And as it turns out, like fan, the air movement is like, on the order of the cube of the diameter of the fan. And when you get to much larger fans, you can actually operate those fans at, at with at much less rotational speed and move way more air. And then when you do that, you draw way less power. So in part of the way we get that, that efficiency is we're not actually doing anything magical with respect to the CPUs. We are, in fact, our goal is to run the CPU at its max TDP, at its thermal design point. What it's all of the rest of the draw in the system. So it is, for example, it is the our fans operate at 2k RPM to, or uh, plus minus. They, uh, they tend to operate at like 2500 RPM even when the when this the machine is cranked. And acoustically, by the way, that is relatively speaking silent. Um, and it is striking when you see this in the, the whole rack on in front of you because it doesn't look like it's on. It doesn't sound like it's on because the the fans are so quiet and they kind of go behind the rack and you kind of feel all of this heat just dumping out on you. So it, it, it is it is not about necessarily the, the what we're trying to do from an efficiency perspective is make sure that that 15 kW rack budget, we want all of that to go into useful work as much as possible. We don't want that to be to, to be wasted. So we want that to go to your compute. We want that to go to to your NVMe drives as you need it. We want it to go to your networking. We wanted to, to drive that to the things that you need to go do it. And the the, the multiplier here can actually be pretty significant because uh, uh, when we are the other thing that we've eliminated is we've eliminated the redundant AC power supplies that exist in that those one U two U enclosures where you've got 
uh, it, redundant AC power supplies that are converting from AC to DC. And no one running at scale does it that way. Uh, everyone running at scale runs with a DC bus bar based system where you do your power conversion in one part of the rack and then you run DC up and down a big honking piece of copper. And you can't buy that system from Dell or HPE or Supermicro. And the efficiency gains over there, just, just that gives you a really appreciable and important efficiency gain. But uh, the, and, and we're yeah, going to have like Google and Facebook and, and absolutely. the hyperscalers all do it. Yeah. Um, uh, sorry, I'm good. Hey, just one thing, Adam, because a couple of people that in, I saw were asking questions around, gosh, it would be nice to see what this thing is like, but before having to write a big check and um, I mentioned it in there, but we, we are striving to have the availability of kind of lab infrastructure that certainly it's going to be hard to fulfill a, a, a bevy of requests, but that we want to give people the opportunity to come in, kind of test drive, get familiar with and look at the software experience of the system without having to uh, buy a full rack. So that's coming soon. And another really good question, an important question in the chat, and I, sure, I want to use this to tease an episode for next week, um, asking about the I'm asking like, questions we love to hear, but like, hey, I want to know about like shipping insurance, logistics, installation site, who does the install, like let's get to really brass tacks of this thing just operational questions around how this rack mechanically gets from where it's manufactured to me. Um, and Ariel, if you don't mind in the chat on that, um, I would love to, let's take those questions uh, next week because we're going to have next week, we're going to be joined by the operations team at Oxide um, that has been absolutely just busting their butts for the last, you know, <laughs> for three and a half years uh, to get this thing shipped and, there's a whole lot we want to go talk about. Um, I want I want us to talk about the engineering of the crate because uh, Adam, have you been to the, the crate is itself is its own like absolute engineering marvel as far as I'm concerned. We've oh, taken like I've three iterations yeah, on like, the crate. Yeah, like taking uh, taking unracking a rack or uh, uncreating a rack rather without instructions was great. It was like it felt like one of these uh, kind of origami creations that was just <laughs> intuitive and like the the tools were sort of there wasn't like hunting for a hex wrench or whatever yeah it was awesome so we want to um i think we we want to have an in-depth conversation on all that stuff um when we got the ops team because they're, they're the the ones that you really want to hear and they are taking a uh a much 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 deserved uh time off so uh we we want to catch up with them next week um should we go back to some hacker news yeah absolutely That's good. all right sweet so um Let's see. One says, uh, seems like Oxide is aiming to be the apple of enterprise hardware, which isn't too surprising given the background of people involved. Sun used to be something like that, as were other fully integrated providers, though granted Sun didn't write its own Unix from scratch. Almost like coming full circle from the days where hardware and software was all done in integrated fashion before Linux turned up and started to run on your toaster. Yes. Yeah, there's, uh, and, and that indeed it's a big thing. I mean, we're certainly not, uh, we find things to emulate in both Apple and Sun for sure. Um, I, I think what we see that, that both those companies have in common, and by the way, uh, have in common with a lot of other companies that people emulate, is this idea of integrated hardware and software in a unified system. And you know, one of the things that has been, was certainly when we were initially raising very frustrating for us, is how iconoclastic that idea felt. 
because it doesn't feel kind of classic to us. Uh, it feels like you know uh, integrated hardware and software. There's another company called NVIDIA that's pretty good at integrated hardware and software. Uh, and, uh, and obviously Apple and uh, you know, Sun, I, Adam, you and I would probably be a little more jaundiced about Sun back in the day. Sun definitely did it, but also didn't do it as well as we wanted them to do it. Uh, we really tried to be, they, they tried to implement that vision, certainly at, at, at Fishworks. Um, and that's part of the reason why when we got to Eclipse, it was such a breath of fresh air, because finally we were talking, and I think we talked about this in our episode on hard tech investing, that the it was such a, a breath of fresh air to encounter an investor who was, like, who was completing our sentences, like, you know, we've done the math and, you know, whatever it was, Steve, was it like 19 out of the largest 25 companies, yeah, companies ever built have hardware and software together. So I, I we, and it's not hardware and software together for, for integration sake and for doing both. It's because that is required to be able to deliver what the customer wants. That's right. Which is this better experience, this services based experience. And you can't control that experience if you're only doing half of the equation. Right. You've really got to do, you've got to take this this holistic system approach. Um, and that's been really important. So I think that that's what we would emulate in both companies, Adam. I think that the, uh, and certainly, you know, we see that to to emulate uh, in Apple. I mean, we did have a uh, a VC at one point that was asking us when we were originally doing our raise, you know, what what's the the best analog for oxide and this is one of those moments where the mouth started moving before the brain was really in gear and before i could really check myself i had already said the as 400 which is definitely like and I, you know it's one of those things where I, like i said the as 400 you gotta kind of you know the rest of your brain to kind of doing the slow clap behind you adam you're like nice going <laughs> nice going well AS on the, on the side, if it had landed you would have known that it was sort of it was meant to be yeah, if it had been that one right VC. That's right. Well, <laughs> it's true. I've been looking to invest in the AS400 of 2020. The coming of the AS400. The AS400 of the future is what I've been telling all my partners we need to find. And of course, like my brain is like, oh yeah, yeah, don't say iPhone. Don't bother, don't bother to say the iPhone. <laughs> ever ever like, heard of it? Ever heard of the iPhone? Let's go with the AS400. Why not? Why not? Yeah, give me a history lesson, Cantrell. You moron. Everyone like, loves the, history. Everyone loves history. Exactly. And it's like, uh, it's like, oh, yep, he's saying System 38. He's doing it. Well, there you go. This is, you know, why do I bother? Uh, the, but the AS400 was another example of this, of uh, uh, really delivering. And, and honestly, Adam, what you and I did at Fishworks was an example of this, where what you are delivering is instant value for the customer. I mean, one thing, I mean, oh, Adam, I knew, you had, have you had a chance to run Wicket yourself? Yeah, I was for sure. Oh. Mike, I have not actually run it. I've seen only other people running it, but we've got our own rack here that we run our that that we've been using to run infrastructure on, and we which has been great. Obviously, that just as consuming your own product, you learn a lot about it. And uh, this week is my turn to actually run it. So I was doing the the fresh install on the rack today. I was giggling as I was running. Like, I mean, the the installation it's experience so it's ridiculous. It, yeah. It's ridiculous. It is so, I mean, it's it's kind of like unspeakably delightful. You know what I want? I want to have the first person who has suffered through Dell, HPE, Supermicro, Cisco, Arista, VMware, setting up a cloud, and then goes to, wheels this rack in and connects to this thing over the te technician port, and they are configuring the rack. Again, it's just this unbelievably gorgeous experience. Yeah, fully call, integrated. I mean, it's, not, it's not a CLI. It is a textual-based GUI, right? It like takes over the screen, and it's just so 
gorgeous and, and, and kind of defies my expectations of what one could do in ASCII. It absolutely defies expectations of what one could do in ASCII. And, you know, kudos to, to Andrew and to Rain and to John and to everyone who's been, been, been working on this together. But it's just amazing. And I mean, I was, again, I was giggling when I was doing it. It's so incredibly delightful. And what I am looking forward to is then the technician, the operator, the engineer, the SRE that then goes to describe that experience to their peer who wasn't there. And it's going to sound like they were having a fever dream. It's just going to sound like, are you listening to yourself? Like this is, you, you just sound... It's like, you know, you were in this nirvana, this, this IT nirvana where things magically happened. It's like the land of chocolate. Um, but it was, is really, and, the, you know, that's the kind of experience that you, and I was funny because I was just talking to Rain earlier today, and Rain's like, yeah, you know, I, I really, you know, I, and her background is coming from Facebook. It's like, I really don't know what the kind of like, the what is the state of the art here? And it's like, very bad. <laughs> very bad it's yeah. the state of the art is you know ipmi and writing down ip addresses in your notebook and then you know suffering through configuration screens trying to hit f1 at the right time and kvms and right like trying to network boot one of these servers where you're logged into you know the two options are some html you know html5 versus java virtual console and you have to like figure out how to input the secret keys at the right moment. And, you know, often <laughs> it works and sometimes it doesn't. It's, it's lunacy. And, it, and as soon as you have to go back to that, you realize how, uh, how much disrespect maybe the industry has for the people running those commands. I, I, totally. That's, Absolutely. That's putting it really, really well. Because I think we've, we've, we've seen, you know, some of the lower level systems access parts of the product that we've shown off to prospective customers are some of the things they've gotten most excited about. Because these are some of the areas of the systems they have to engage with that are completely overlooked and that haven't been because there's just no empathy for the systems operator, network operator, person who's got to update firmware. Um, and it, it is, I think that's it. It, it. it is just that there's just been no thoughtfulness that has gone into that. And it is, uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to test driving that. Oh, man. Yeah, it's yeah, so, it's amazing. Some of that is ignorance and some of it is, um, just technical obstacles, you know, like the folks, like certainly folks like at Google and AWS value the time of operators, at least in the sense of they want an operator to be able to manage as many systems as possible. Uh, same thing that, that other companies want. They just don't have access to the tools that would allow them to do that. Totally. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, okay. So uh, maybe a tougher question here. I truly and honestly hope you succeed, says uh, this reporter. All right. All right. No, yeah, no, no, that's here. It. no buts coming. No. I know for certain that the market for on-prem will remain large for a certain sector for the foreseeable future. However. Okay. Now, now, yeah, exactly. Now you're even more braced. Right. However, However. Right. The kind of customer who spends this type of money can be conservative. They already have to go with an unknown vendor and rely on unknown hardware. Then they end up with a hypervisor virtually no one else in the same market segment uses. Would you say that KVM or ESXi would have been an easier sell or harder sell here? Innovation budget can be a useful concept, but I'm afraid it's being stretched a lot. So that's yeah. an interesting question yeah. just in terms of, you know, how does this thing get consumed? Totally. And I think it was, you know, a bit of an 
open question. It wasn't open very long, but we did kind of wonder what do we do about the hypervisor? Definitely. Uh, and it, and we, we had some advisors to the company early who were like, you, boy, you really need to be sure you can run ESX on the EXI on this thing. It's like, yeah, no, we're not going to do that. Um, in part because we know that we can deliver more value. Uh, we, and we had a lot of experience uh, with our own hypervisor at, at Joyent, um, with SmartOS and Beehive, and kind of had a lot of experience in that domain. Um, so we, we, we knew we could go do that. We also felt that there were a lot of reasons why VMware is not really popular with their own customers. And, you know, actually that same early advisor to the company when, uh, you know, VMware, and who knows if it's going to close or not, but when, when Broadcom announced the acquisition of VMware, that same advisor was like, boy, you guys were so smart to not do ESXi. Oh, my goodness. goodness. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, all right. Um, but the, um, and, and then it began to rattle off a lot of supporting detail about how even in the last three years, I mean, it, it, it's it, just to be uh, fair to, to their perspective, because honestly, that perspective was, has shifted in part because the company itself has shifted as it has really gone and become very rent seeking. So I think that, you know, the question of like, hey, these folks are conservative. And uh, that's definitely, that is true. I mean, I would say that like what, what they're doing, I would, I would phrase it slightly differently in that what they're doing is important and what they're delivering is important and they treat it with with gravitas they they they, they take their responsibility to their own customers seriously and they need to know that they're getting a high quality product that a company stands behind i think part of the frustration that they are currently feeling is i'm frustrated with dell i'm frustrated with hp i'm frustrated with supermicro i'm frustrated with cisco i'm also really frustrated with vmware and then I have got, and by the way, like it, VMware being bought by Broadcom does nothing for my frustration. So I think that that comment is is correctly identifying some of of the, the natural reticence to just you know deploy the latest technology or the latest thing simply because it's new. But it, it may be underestimating the level of frustration that people have um, with VMware in particular, and especially as they're looking to go negotiate a new agreement with VMware, it's like they're they're not feeling necessarily great about it. Well, and I think like I mean, telecoms are airlines, right? Like you use the one that screwed you over least recently, and then you just move right. in a circle <laughs> forever. That's right. Yeah, and I mean, they're they're he's kind of keying in. They are keying in on business risk. Like you know, can obviously uh, new company. So can I trust that the company will be viable? as long as I'm going to be making an investment in, in the technology. And this is a big part of being able to find the right partners, the right, the, the, the right investment partners that were signed up to stand behind Oxide. And, and uh, we, we've been very, very fortunate to have a, a, a great team of investors around the company that have a, a decade plus long vision for, for what we're going to go do and, and have, have been willing to jump on the phone with fortune 500 companies to, to talk to them about how they view the company and, and the longevity. It's, you know, we think it's super important that we are very transparent yeah. about what we're building. Cause I mean, I would, I would, it, you know, you can, you can kind of flip it around and you can say, you know, is it, is it better to have a, a something that someone else has run before that you know nothing about or to kind of know everything? about the thing that you're now adopting. And what we've heard from customers is the fact that we are opening up the software stack, 
the fact that we've the fact that we've been as transparent as we've been about what we're building, how we're building it. Indeed, this very podcast, dear listener, is, yeah. is a part of that transparency. And what we've heard from folks that are in this conservative set, right, this sort of Fortune 1000 demographic, is it is precisely because of that that they've been able to socialize and build trust internally in the organizations that have allowed them to take the first step. And, and I think you, as you mentioned earlier, it's like, you know, that it was in question for a period of time, but not long. And um, now we are, we're shipping to that demographic and it's, it, it also is going to be very helpful as we get more and more installs there that it will make it more comfortable for the, for the ones coming after that. Absolutely. I mean, the proof is, is always in the pudding. And uh, you know, I think that we, and indeed, you know, three and a half years ago, people were wondering about like, boy, you're looking at AMD versus Intel and making all of the same arguments. In fact, we had another different advisor to the companies. Like, I think you're making a real mistake by going to AMD because no one's going to adopt AMD. And we're like, yeah, but if you look at, just look at the numbers, look at our analysis. What, what, what hole are you finding in the analysis here? And uh, needless to say, we are not at all surprised by what has happened in the, the, the last three and a half years for the relative fates. Uh, and not that it, you know, never, one should never discount um, Intel's ability to compete, certainly. But, um, but we knew that, like, that AMD, by delivering a, a superior microprocessor product, uh, would win people over. Um, and you win people over with, with a better product and better economics and so on. So we, we believe that in the, in, in the limit, we know we've got something really compelling here. And in the, in the meantime, it is that transparency and trust that is so important to us. Yeah, and customers are looking for, uh, you know, before they're asking, oh, what's the hypervisor? They're asking, like, what is the interface that my development teams are going to operate against? It's like, do you, will will Terraform work? <laughs> um, and and they, they, I mean, they care about the hypervisor in as much as they care, in as much as they have upstack third-party software constraints that they want to validate. We have not run into those that are disqualified and we're going to continue, you know, being able to support more and more and more as we, uh, as we go. But um, they're, they're looking for a bunch of things that include like when I have an issue with the application that I'm running on this infrastructure, how many different companies do I have to call? Right. And indeed right now it's like five or six. The right now state of the art is it's five or six and it is really asking for permission for them to tell you to go fuck yourself. I mean, it, 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 because none of those five is going to actually own the problem, even when the problem is indisputably theirs. And this is the thing that is really, really, really frustrating is the cacophony inside the bomb, Adam. That's when you really get, and we did it. We had a, a brutal problem where we were having machines reset due to a dim failure, due to, due to a dim error. And, uh, you know, we get the runaround from the single vendor that, that sold us the part, but that sold us the unit, we're getting the runaround. And they're trying to blame, they're trying to blame everybody else. They're trying to blame every one of their suppliers. They're trying to blame. And then, you know, we're the only customer that's seeing this. I mean, they're not ultimately, and, and, and the kind of the realization was they are not taking responsibility for this problem, not because they don't want to at some level, but because they can't. They can't because they didn't actually build the whole thing. They actually don't know how it works. And that is a real problem. And one of the things that we believe that is our core differentiator as a company, because we do actually understand how the whole thing works top to bottom, 
we can absolutely take responsibility for for any problem within there. And as we, one of the things you're going to hear us talk about is delivering oxide value. Delivering oxide value is the capacity to to support that for the customer. Um, so when we when we look at a component, when we look at a part of the system, we want to know that we can deliver oxide value with that component, and that which is to say, we want to know that we can actually support any problem that that the system might have as a result of this component. Oh my God! And Zentranic says usually they blame the operating system first. <laughs> Absolutely. Oh God! I mean, you, I mean, God! And 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 you know, I used to think because you know we were at Joint, we were running this Illumos derivative smart OS, and that where I'm getting you, you know, of course, the second they find out that we're not like, wait a minute, you're not running Linux. Oh well, then that's the problem. It's like no, no, but wait a minute. Unsupported configuration. The end. Unsupported configuration. And so literally, we had a Dell perk issue. Where the perk, the machine would not boot because the perk had a parity error. And you're like, it's a smart OS issue. The perk is the is the RAID controller. And they're like, it's a smart OS issue. It's like smart OS is seeing through space and time and preventing this machine from booting. I, I don't understand how like I <laughs> you mean before we have even executed a before we have executed an instruction. Yes. That's right. That's right. It's, yes. it's like, reminds me when I was in college, you know, they didn't support Linux on the university network, but of course I was trying to do that. And so I'd like email, you know, tech desk help with like, Hey, uh, you know, this isn't quite working. And they would be like, what does it say when you open this control panel and put that in? And I'd be like, Oh yeah, I definitely opened that control panel. And here's what it says, <laughs> you know, it just like completely. And then eventually at some point, you know, they would like figure out I was actually using Linux and be like, yeah, we just don't support that. And I'm like, I, but you could, I don't well, and the thing that that I have, you know, since learned, because obviously, like, fine, like, you're on, trust me, that we get really used to that answer to the point that, like, all right, yeah, I get it. Fine. Yeah, it's our fault. Somehow we're preventing you from booting or whatever. The, um, but what you learn is that, like, actually, everyone gets that right. And it's like, oh, like, which version of Ubuntu are you running? Like, oh, run a different version of Ubuntu. Like, oh, are you running with all, like, all the patches? Like, download these patches. Like, yeah, this has got nothing to do with my problem, though. And, and the, and you realize that all of that stuff is actually an excuse for not understanding the problem. And it's a terrible customer experience. I don't care what you are a customer of, but to be told that I'm not going to investigate your problem because of something that you're doing. It's basically, I mean, it is quite literally victim blaming. It is like, you have a problem because it's you. I found the problem. You, dear customer, you are the problem. And you're like, you know what? Maybe I am the problem. Maybe I, you know what, I am the problem. I'm going to remove myself from this. And actually on that perk issue, Adam, I was so frustrated. This was kind of like back in the day. This is in uh, 2010. And um, being told, in particular, because the other thing they're telling you is like, I, it, it ha th this is the, the Dell reasoning why this has to be a smart OS problem. Because we're not seeing it from any other customer. And you're like, okay, uh, are you are you not seeing it from any other customer, or is no other customer telling you? It's like I, again, you may be speaking your own truth, but I, I refuse to believe that we are somehow the only customer seeing this. And I gave a presentation, and we, there were like three hundred people in the room. This is Surge, two thousand ten. I'm like, hey, just before I start my presentation, um, is anyone seeing parity errors on a Dell Perk, whatever it was, H seven hundred or whatever it was? And uh, you see in a room of 300, you see maybe like nine hands shoot up, like definitely not zero. And you could just see like the nine hands all making eye contact with one another being like, wait a minute. Okay, I'm not the only one seeing this. And the uh, so with very much everyone had been told 
you're the only one seeing this problem. And it is a, it, it, it's a terrible customer experience. Um, and we want to, we believe that in order to be able to deliver better, you need to be able to deliver the system. But then importantly, you can deliver better and you can deliver a much better customer experience. And that's very important just to kind of, to, to kind of pull it back to that original question for those folks that are delivering very important workloads to their customers, that level of support is really important. And the knowledge that we can actually provide that is really, really important to these folks. And uh, I mean, the commenter's right in that these organizations are not, they're, they're, they're not going to buy the latest thing just because it's the latest thing. Um, but they, they also are, uh, they've got a real problem in front of them and they want to find a way to solve it. And Oxide actually provides a vector to help solve that. Yeah. It understates the the pain that they're in, even though the pain is the status quo. Absolutely, uh, absolutely. Good, good follow up in chat. Um, says, what is the interface when I turn this computer on? Like, what is the zero to first value when I buy this hardware? Oh, great question. Great question. I mean, that is just yeah. That's the especially given the time to value for for on prem today is you know, we, we've heard up to ninety days from the time all the boxes land in the data center to developers getting on and actually being productive. Um, so what what the experience that we are delivering for customers is you roll the rack in, you have to give it power and you have to give it networking. You have to check the height of your doors. You do have to check the height of your doors, but just the, it, it, this rack you give is it a little short. water bowl and you give it a bed. <laughs> That's right. And That's right. Sorry. You don't want, you don't want to have puppy. less work than a puppy. Ideally, no speed bumps between the loading dock and the data center. Yes. Um, but but you and, and the experience that, Brian, you were talking about earlier, Wicked, the, yeah. the, this yeah. kind of rack setup service that, uh, but but you get it, that you get it into the data center, get it to its, uh, its floor tile, uh, give it networking, give it power, and you are then off on starting the software experience. There's a modicum of configuration that you that it needs as a literal kind of bootstrap configuration. You provide that, and uh, yeah, then you're. But the expectation is within, I would say. I mean, I've been saying a day, and then you will scoff and say I will scoff one hour. I will scoff. Yeah, because yeah, well, you've been saying because a day is so much better than ninety. I, days. I know you've been saying like a a day or a small number of days. I'm like, look, I know that normally you're making a claim, and I'm telling you to like cool your jets. But in this case, like heat your jets up a little bit. Like, would you? It's like no, it's like it's like a day. I mean, I guess like you know maybe. It, it, but but same day. Uh, you are opening up a large pool of infrastructure resources to your customers, namely software development teams, SRE teams, platform teams, um, and they are able to interface with an API, CLI, or a console to go create a project to programmatically like, you know, script to deploy instances and configurations for the software they want to go run, invite other teammates, be able to uh, integrate into the auth system that they use today. So the experience should be like going to, you know, for those that have run in AWS or GCP, that you can go to an elastic compute service, storage service, and set of network and security services and be productive deploying software in a matter of minutes. And that should, that, that will all take place. Um, well, I guess we're going to say now with within an hour or two, <laughs> right? Exactly. Uh, yeah, there you go. Uh, I get it. Rolling the rack in the data center, right? Which is um, when when we have told folks this, they, it's unbelievable. Yeah, they, they've they've it, definitely um, been in disbelief. 
to to come to Steve's defense here slightly, Brian, I think your your last <laughs> word there is totally accurate. Like it's unbelievable, right? And so sometimes yes, you have to right. tell people an answer that's much longer <laughs> than it actually is because they just literally will not believe you. I I used to work in the payment space and I had to deal with banks. And one of my responsibilities was talking to like the vendors upstream. And they used to always laugh at our calls because like I would be like, I would like this tomorrow. And they were like, oh, we were hoping you'd say two weeks, but like the, the person with the longest bet was like three months. And it's just because those time scales are like so much longer than they are in like our corner of the world that like, yeah. you know, people won't believe you if you tell them it's only an hour when 90 days is their norm. So even telling them like a couple days like seems hard to believe. Seems hard to believe. No, it totally is. And that's actually, yeah, it, it, it seems like a total stretch. And it is. Uh, and, so the, and so they can provision, you know, arbitrarily sized, uh, Instances run arbitrary operating systems in those instances um, and be able to kind of carve up the system to meet compute intensive, memory intensive, IO intensive, storage intensive, like whatever, whatever the particular application or set of instances require or software requires, uh, be able to do that and do that programmatically. And so again, for those that have used EC2 and EBS and VPC like things, like very familiar. Um, for those that haven't, it, it, it's going to be a, a pretty remarkable experience. Well, and importantly, and Steve, you said it in there, but I just want to emphasize, you said doing this over console, over CLI, over API. And w one of the things that I'm really proud of what the team has done is allow you to use any of those three vectors for more or less anything in the system. I mean, it is really remarkable. It's a huge credit to I know, work that you and you personally have done, but the, the uh, it's been it, and God the, the the UI the console UI, which I feel like maybe we have we have not emphasized enough certainly around here uh, is just it is so fast. Um, it is really really nice, and that team has done a, just a beautiful job um, on the 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 uh, the web console, but then also having those same interfaces available via the CLI via the via the API allows you to pick whatever the right vector is. I had to be told in the chat that you should talk about the UI more than the, the 80 millimeter fans. All right, listen, I, I, you know, we do not need to choose between the UI and the 80 millimeter fans. I can love them both. He loves both. both children equally. <laughs> I, exactly. You know, it, you know when, when Bridget was pregnant with our third, my mom had a great line. So you find that, that your, your love expands, but your time does not. And my love expands. All right, old crow, my time, my love expands, my time may not, and I will give more time to the UI because my love is, I, I have love for, for both the UI and the ADO leader fans. Uh, well, right, well, the, well, speaking of time not expanding, let's let's keep it moving. There's a but the 80 millimeter fans did come first. One of my concerns uh, when buying a complete solution like an iPhone or an oxide rack, monkey face, is how much ownership I have over the device. Totally. Where does Oxide draw the line on ownership of the rack? Yeah, that's a great question. And, and for us, it's actually really important that it's, uh, it's your computer. So you, you've bought the computer. It belongs to you. And one of our challenges is, and this is, a, I mean, I would say this is without precedent, but we are shipping you a distributed system with that computer. So there's some special like challenges for 
you know, how we support that, how we enable that. Um, but the, the, the computer is yours. Um, and it's very you know, funny in the abstract to have to clarify that, right? Like it sounds, it's like you purchased a thing, you have it your, is like, your money we is actually your... do need to clarify that, but it's just like in the abstract, it sounds totally <laughs> right. ridiculous. It is. It is true. Yeah. Steve, you know, I thought about that, that. Like, yeah, this is where we live now, where we actually need to clarify that. Like we are, the thing you bought. the thing you bought is actually not a loss leader. So we can sell you more ads. It's actually like a thing you bought the end. Uh, so in terms of like the, the the ownership of the system, it is actually, it, it is important to us. And it's important to us as an abstract point, I think, um, and important to us uh, individually as as technologists and, and as employees of Oxide, that it is your computer and we want to really enable that that ownership. Um, and I think that that extends in a lot of different dimensions. And we want to be transparent about, so you've got a operator level and a developer level, kind of an end user uh, customer of the system for our customers. And uh, much like them setting up accounts in the public cloud, they will be setting up accounts and, and provisioning infrastructure and operating at that later. And you'll have folks in many organizations that are responsible for kind of maintaining and managing the infrastructure that software teams are running on at what would be, you know, an SRE or platform team kind of layer. And then you've got the operations teams traditionally that are responsible for uh, kind of care and, and upkeep management of the lower level systems infrastructure. And so we will have a, a, a set of operator interfaces that allow them to understand what the system is doing and make sure that they can kind of manage and maintain and set expectations internally. And then anything that we are kind of injecting ourselves into by way of kind of support and updates, et cetera, is to Brian, your point, just making sure that this complicated distributed system is running well. It's it's in the it's in the interest of making sure that the customer is getting, you know, a highly available and efficient system that is running. So if there are places where we are uh, where where customers trying to go into the lowest layers of the system could put that at risk. You know, the, the you know we're going to be upfront and transparent around that. So, and one of the just, just to sharpen that point, Ian is asking, do we sell support contracts? Um, and does it come with a certain number of years of of updates? So we do. It it comes with a subscription that allows one to get all software updates and and again all hardware warranted and. Uh, those come typically in three years, but uh, we have folks that are going to be getting them longer than that and shorter than that. So there are some folks that can do it only annually, and that is fine. Uh, we're, we're very flexible on the on the timing of that. Uh, another great question, just to follow up to that, is the is the rack dependent on any oxide cloud services, or is it entirely standalone? I don't mean to laugh because I just. <laughs> I just laugh at Josh's suffering every time I think of physical infrastructure that relies on. I, we got a bunch of ubiquity gear that was maybe a debatable Mistake. decision. What's that? Mistake. Yeah, and uh, the uh, uh, that thing has an AWS console that apparently like uh, I, does like works nine to five. <laughs> that console, that console is not. Extremely frustrating. So this is a long way of saying uh, emphatically not. In fact, it's very important to us that the Oxide rack is entirely standalone, that it is not going to Oxide for any cloud services. So well, I, uh, very, very important. However, for updates, it will fetch it from what yes. is arguably a cloud service, that is to say like a web server running somewhere. 
and you know there, yeah, I mean, there are yeah that's un- yeah but 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 i mean your your broader point is is the, the most important one which is like this is not like AWS outposts this is not some uh you know vassal some some piece of a larger cloud this is your <laughs> cloud running independently <laughs> I just think they should rename an outpost to vassals. Like, oh, I okay. mean, outpost has kind of that that sort of connotation. Does have the connotation? Like, let's go all the way. Let's yeah. just call them vassals. It, 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 totally, Adam. That's a very good point. That like ultimately, in order to get updates in, and then the other thing is like, okay, well, what, what if I want to get support data out? Uh, those be, and that's ultimately, uh, but the, the the customer has total agency over that data in and over that data out. That that's not happening. Um, with kind of an implicit cloud service. Um, there, um, there was another. Yeah. yeah go ahead. Please go ahead, Brian. Go ahead, Adam. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I was going to change it back to some of the comments in Hacker News, um, just because we've been uh, there. There were some acerbic ones, but I did want to read a couple of the nice ones. Uh, someone says this is super cool. I realize a lot of HN folks might not see the point of this, but it literally saves an entire team of people for companies. Uh, another one says, Oxide is such an ambitious project. I'm such a fan of the aesthetic and design and, of course, transparency of all the people who work there. I'd love to have a rack or two someday. Call us. Um, and, 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 then, and just uh, not yeah, to no, cut you off thing, uh, mentioning that, the, the good comments, but just to reinforce one of those points, um, there's a demographic of folks, the, the large cloud SaaS companies that um, we don't talk a lot about, but we've had conversations with some of the, the kind of the biggest, most well-known and their ambitions don't lie in, you know, this, this online conversation about cloud repatriation and cutting costs. I mean, that is of interest to these, these, these firms, but they're more interested in like, how do we grow our business over the next 10 years? And how do we capture more data that sits outside of the public cloud? And for those companies, they're thinking about how do we extend our infrastructure beyond just running on top of one of the big three cloud providers. And I can tell you, they, there, is, there is no path that includes, let me go compile you know, six or seven vendors worth of infrastructure and build that team, Adam, that you just mentioned, which is like saving someone building a huge and entire team. Um, and so I think that's just, again, kind of speaks to, yes, there's there's a, a need for operational efficiency in classic on-prem enterprises. The cloud SaaS folks are trying to figure that out too because they can't go build uh, this, this antiquated team or this team for legacy solutions to go extend beyond the public cloud. Uh, so one comment yeah. that I had to read just for me because I had to read through all these Hacker News comments, which you know is not my favorite. This person writes, FYI, for language pedants like me, it's on-premises or on-prem. A premise is something assumed to be true. So that is a PSA that I endorse. Hey, Adam, I can only assume that this is one of your alts. That is... Uh... <laughs> yeah, well, whoever wrote that, what a genius. What a, what a, what a genius. And I, Adam, clearly this is... Uh, it, have we put your supercut in the Oxide channel yet? We definitely... Need. I know we've talked uh, about the supercut so. before. The supercut. Could you describe the supercut again? Because it's just. I well, mean. Well, uh, so I was. Um, <laughs> yeah, I was watching reInvent, and uh, I, I was there. But someone told me whenever you go to reInvent, you just watch the keynote from your hotel room. So I was following that sage wisdom. And uh, Andy Jassy got on stage with Pat Gelsinger, then the the um, CEO of VMware, and Andy Jassy 
kept on talking about outposts on-premises, uh, doing work on-premises, having VMware on-premises. And then Pat Gelsinger comes out and starts saying on-premise infrastructure, on-premise compute. And it was almost as though Jassy was overemphasizing it to try to correct him and pull him back. Are we talking about on-premises infrastructure? Yes, yeah. I'm talking about on-premise infrastructure. Like, we are in yeah. an impact. Then, friend. Oh, I see what you're saying. The premise is that the infrastructure is in your data center. <laughs> so you you did a supercut. Yes. You yes. It took a very long time. I'm I'm not very good at video editing. I'm only slightly better at audio editing. But it was uh, it really is delightful. The supercut. I would like to believe that the supercut has paid dividends because it is really very delightful of Gelsinger and ja and Jassy, of course. Jassy being correct in this case, then uh, it is it is on premises. Um, sure. Please. Um, Adam, a question that came up in the chat that has also come up a bunch, did come up in the Hacker News threads, has come up in the past, and is is uh, one that I, that I definitely want to tackle because it's a reasonable question, is like, hey, uh, how about something smaller? <laughs> uh, like, when is Oxide going to make a, a smaller rack? Um, like, I, I, I like this, but I, I want it for my home lab. Or I like this, but... I want it for a, the community college where I'm an IT administrator could really use this. And uh, I just want to speak to that a little bit because uh, we definitely, uh, well, the home lab problem, like home lab, sorry, love you, home lab, probably not going to be for the home lab. You can, like, come on, you, well, you, you love to tinker. That's part of the home lab. And uh, for the home lab, good news, it's all open source and you should go play around with like a nucleo board. And, 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 and there's a bunch of stuff you can go do in the home lab. For that, though, that kind of smaller enterprise user, uh, we definitely see you, um, and we, um, our belief, and I think remains, that we wanted to tackle the whole rack problem, because this is a problem that is easier to scale down than up. And I think one of our concerns when we started the company is if you start small, it is uh, it can be really, really hard to get to the size that you actually need to get to for these large multi-rack enterprise customers. So we are focused on those large multi-rack enterprise customers right now, but we have done so with a deliberate eye towards a, an architecture because we absolutely see those small to medium-sized businesses, the car dealerships, the community colleges, the retail establishments, the, the, the retailers, the, the amusement parks, the attractions. Like we, we see those use cases and we know that like a nine-foot rack drawing 15KW is not necessarily the right fit for all of those, but we have done we have built this rack with the and which is not to say that, you know, yeah, I would love to tell you we've got something immediately for coming. We definitely don't, but we've also um, architecturally, there is nothing here that won't scale down to a point. It's not going to go ultimately, it is not going to go to the home lab. Ultimately, it is the, the, there, there are limits to, to where we're not we going under the desk. It, it's not going under the desk. Uh, we definitely, a bunch of us do have gimlets at home, definitely, but. But I think part of the, the questions have come in, in a couple of different dimensions. One has been, hey, can you scale this down from a power perspective? And the answer to that is yes. Yeah, right. So we, we've got folks that are interested in the, the nine feet is not a constraint. And they, they have room for that, but not for power. And so you actually can deploy it as is with fewer sleds. For sure. Which would bring that power requirement down quite a bit. Um, the other thing that's great is that as we think about a future where there's different form factors, um, you know, a big part of this was getting the software right first. That's right. And so not having to go 
build a different set of software to go support a smaller footprint. I think we've done we've done a lot of the heavy lifting to be able to support those form factors. We just have to figure out what the broadest ask for the market is going to be once we're out of or, or beyond the core data center or rack size kind of edge deployment use case. And I would say we, this is one where we're definitely keeping our ear to the market. So if you've got a particular use case where it's like, hey, you should hear about my use case, we would love to hear from you because we really... This is one of those that we're going to want to be um, re- really uh, paying close attention to because uh, it, it is something that is just, it, it requires so little from us architecturally. Um, it is, um, And then I think the other one that we probably want to tackle, and sorry, I know uh, Tom is here, Tom Lyon is here. It's great, to you, it's great to see you, Tom, in the chat. And Tom's like, God, I'm so relieved that no one has said AI or Edge. So, of course, Tom, by just saying that, you've summoned me saying uh, at least the those AI workloads. Because another question that comes up, actually, surprisingly, Adam, I don't think it did come up in the Hacker News thread, which is kind of interesting. No, it didn't. But yeah, didn't, people didn't seem to latch onto GPU or, or, in particular, our lack of support for GPU. Which is kind of surprising. Um, but uh, actually, maybe that just reflects that we, you know, we are, uh, the, people actually understand the need for general purpose compute in addition to... I will, obviously, you know, that, that high-performance compute on the GPGPU, uh, we obviously understand the need for um i talked earlier about delivering oxide value it is hard for us to see how we deliver oxide value with nvidia nvidia is a very proprietary company and one of the things that's very important to us is that end customer has a problem we need to be able to support them all the way through and with nvidia when you've got a problem it's really hard uh, when when your version of open source software is a is a trampoline into your proprietary firmware really really hard to actually go support that end to end so it's it, I don't think it's impossible to see how we do it with NVIDIA, but it's really hard. It's a strain, and <laughs> NVIDIA is not exactly. I think uh, NVIDIA is. Um, I, I I don't necessarily know that they they care about oxide, so I uh, probably don't care about our opinion on that one anyway. So as we are looking to those workloads, again, want to move very very carefully. Uh, really listening to the market, um, but we are uh, definitely see some interesting things out there. So um, we're, we're paying attention to some of those things that are not necessarily NVIDIA. We obviously know that the CUDA barrier is a huge one. Again, uh, NVIDIA has, you know, they're very proprietary, but they have properly invested in hardware and software together. And it really shows in the depth of their mode. So um, it's someone in the in the chat is talking about AMD GPUs. Obviously, we've got a very close relationship with AMD. We love what they're doing there. That's something to pay really close attention to. Um, and just in, in the abstract, we are paying attention to the space, uh, but we, uh, that's not something right now, our product is really focused on that, that compute storage networking. I mean, like our product, if you compare to AWS is like four or five of their services at best and their service menu stretches across many, many screens for any given sector, there's five different services they could bring to bear. So there's lots of opportunity for us to fill out that roadmap. That's right. Uh, another uh, good question was around, uh, sorry, Adam, go ahead. No, please. Uh, well, I was going to, with a uh, question about Firecracker, um, the, and uh, is there, a, could you compare Firecracker to your hypervisor? Uh, we actually looked at Hyper- Firecracker. We took a pretty deep look at Firecracker. Uh, the there are things we like about it. Um, the it's uh, it's in Rust, which is great. It's kind of a de novo implementation, which is nice. I ultimately concluded that it didn't, it just didn't have the same use case. Um, we are really focused on that, for lack of a better word, industrial VM use case, where uh, as Dan's pointing out in the chat, the Firecracker is based on cross VM. 
uh, we are really more focused on, it's very important to us that we can run Windows as a guest, that we can run arbitrary Linux guests, that we can that we can run, yes, SCO open server as, as a guest. I know if... <laughs> super important. <laughs> super important. We, uh, where if, if Josh Kulo... Herd needs to run or else right, nobody would buy it. Well, and uh, this is actually, I, I'm really just, I, I am actually trolling one of our number. Uh, the uh, Years ago, we had a, uh, a customer who was evaling, uh, evaling us this back in Joyantes and really needed SCO to be running. So Clue did some absolutely heroic work to get SCO running. And I know we can do it again. We'll do it again, Josh. We did it before. We'll do it again. SCO will be, uh, the, um, but we, we, it's important to us that we can run effectively arbitrary guests. Um, so, and Firecracker just doesn't have that same ambition, um, which is fine. Um, the other thing that's really important for us, um, and you know, Jordan, I saw mentioned it in the chat, uh, something that we have not spoken a huge amount about, we definitely need to have an, uh, an episode dedicated to it at some point, uh, is live migration. So another thing that we saw, and this is this kind of comes from some hard wisdom that we had learned um, at Joyent, that the, the, if you don't allow for transparent workload migration, uh, and you, you, Adam, you remember when, when VMware did vMotion, I think there was a certain degree we were like, really? That just seems like, is that, a, is that a toy? Is that real? And I don't know, maybe, maybe Adam, you didn't have that same. I, mean, I think there was both. I didn't understand the use case, and it felt like black magic, like terrifying, totally. awesome, amazing. And but it turns out vMotion is really really important, and the and the ability to live migrate a workload is really important because if you can't do that, you end up with these islands of compute that you can't do anything with. And it so when people talk about the the inability to maximize the utilization of a DC or of a rack, it is often because it's like no no I can't go and yeah I know that that machine looks like it's 80% available. It's actually not. I've got one workload on there that I'm not allowed to, to turn off and I can't migrate it. And that machine is like out of warranty. So as soon as that workload is turned off, like that thing's being deracked. So, the, and we had this problem a lot where we, it was very hard to do lifecycle management if you can't live migrate. So one of the things that was important to us as we're looking at the hypervisor and the user level machine model was the ability to build live migration, um, which the uh, the team has done just an extraordinary job of doing, um, and that that uh, a, a demo for the ages uh, was Greg and James in a shared Minecraft server that was being furiously migrated around the rack, um, which was which was great. Um, That's awesome. But so th th that was another uh, very uh, important uh, dimension as we were looking at a hypervisor is the ability to go do exactly that. Um, and another reason why Firecracker was not a great fit for us. Uh, there are a couple of simple questions on Hacker News, some of which I think have simple answers, some of which have complicated answers. Um, one is, are you shipping Milan racks? And if so, what does moving to Genoa entail for Oxide? I'd also note that there was another comment, which I won't bother reading, that said that listed it Read as it. a- Read yeah, it, okay. call me. The listed items are for last-gen CPUs and two-gen old NICs. Do you want the rest uh, of it, too? Uh, <laughs> also ZFS rather than Ceph. It's hard, blah, blah, blah. Anyway. Yeah, there you go. Uh, 
yeah, I mean, I do think it's kind of like ridiculous to be like, these are old generation CPUs. It's like Genoa was literally, I mean, the release of Genoa is in November of last year. If we were on Genoa, we would not have a product for another 18 months. That is the reality. So uh, no one's using two by 100 NICs anymore. No, no one's using two by 100. Exactly. <laughs> Meanwhile, <laughs> right. like, I don't think I could, I could, I could saturate 10% of that. Oh God. Uh, just ridiculous um but the we are based on, on milan so 7713p single socket uh great part um genoa obviously we have been amd's been a terrific partner and we absolutely will have a general based sled um there are some challenges with genoa um the uh the, the genoa has got the, the the tdp is higher um in a way that's pretty challenging and we are going to want to be take a, a, a again keep a very close ear to the market in terms of what the market needs and for compute density. I mean, we know that from a compute density perspective, the seventy seven thirteen p crushes it. It's a great part. Um, if you look at at the cores per watt, it's really terrific. Um, and I think as we're looking at the Genoa SKU stack, we're figuring out exactly where we're going to tack in there. Um, and I, you know, we, we spend so much time on the AMD roadmap. I don't, I can't remember what's NDA and what's not, so I'm just not going to speak to it. But we're also looking at at what comes next from Genoa. Um, there's a bunch of stuff interesting there. Um, we are certainly going. We will do a, a design around the, uh, their next gen socket for sure. So that's, I mean, the the, the big lift is the next gen socket, um, and we are absolutely. You will see a, a Genoa based product from us um but that is and, uh, and importantly architecturally the rack level design is yes. such that you deploy a rack a set of racks in your data center um you then have the opportunity to go add sleds that are the next generation sled in that same rack or set of racks kind of mix and match so you have you know modularity in terms of what you need and it's not going to require ripping out an oxide rack putting in a new one because the rack itself was designed for you know, to sustain several generations. Is that that's right? right. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, we I mean we view the rack as being really I mean, that's the platform under which we're going to go build. And so people are asking about the the actual uh, throughput of the rack. So yeah, it's, it it is two by one hundred dropped in to, to each sled. So the uh, we we've actually we've got. Uh, 6.4 terabits of of networking uh, that faces the rack, and then another 32 ports on the other side that faces the network. So the faces the uh, customer's network. And Arian uh, made a, a terrific observation kind of early on that like, hey, wait a minute, we can actually just use some of these front-linking ports to directly connect racks together and actually be able to uh, grow to some number of racks um, without having to actually add additional core networking at all, which is really kind of neat. So um, we, we've got, um, I, I think, uh, ample networking. I would also direct folks to the uh, our, our episode on a, a measurement, a measurement two years in the making, uh, where we talked about um, all of the challenges uh, of actually um, getting to uh, to 28 gig PAM, uh, 20 gig NRZ, and then trying to get to 56 gig PAM or um and all the kind of the si challenges there but um i think we've got ample uh despite your hacker news comment adam i believe <laughs> that we have got ample throughput on our cable yeah. backplane and our switch um another question uh do you have liquid cooling solution collaborators so our first uh first collaborator 
in the kind of augmented cooling space is uh, with a company that designs uh, chiller doors, a company called Motivair. And um, we do not do liquid cooling in the system. So the, our, our first product uh, d- does not have liquid cooling uh, as part of the architecture, but we, where we have, um, where we are deploying, where folks have, uh, have additional considerations where they need to pull hot air out. Um, we have worked with um, companies that are building the, the chiller doors to be able to capture that air and then convert that to room temperature air. And we're, we're looking at, you know, what makes sense in future architectures, um, but not, not today. So How I think easy is controlling the RGB lights that are all over the rack? I think that's the real question people <laughs> want to know the answer to. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> the, uh, well, and I, I think that, you know, one of the, I think the, the challenge that we see in front of us more directly than moving to liquid cooling is just the power budget for the rack. I mean, one of the big, uh, you know, and this is actually a bit of a misunderstanding too in that, that Hacker News thread about kind of what our target is. We are targeting the enterprise DC, not the hyperscaler DC. And what is the difference there? The difference there is that in the enterprise DC, kind of lucky to get to 15 kW per rack, which is where we we are targeted at 15 kW per rack. There are plenty of enterprise DCs that are at at 10 kW, 12 kW, or less. You know, 8 kW or even less. Uh, versus you go to the hyperscalers and they're like, no, 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 like we are at at 35 kW or 40 kW or 40, and like we are. I think the big challenge on as we begin to look at alternate cooling, the first problem we're actually going to have is power budget in the DC, um, and I, I, power budget per rack, um, and kind of how we spend that. So that we, as we go to look, even and even going to partner with motive air and and chiller doors. Um, the, as we go to look at this, we're going to look at it systemically and make sure that we're not, you don't want to have a liquid cooled solution that can only be a quarter of a rack that that doesn't actually solve any problem. Um, this is a, maybe a little bit of a can of worms, but I think an important one to address. Uh, why do you use Alumos? Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, that's a great question. And, And that came up, um, in, in the chat as well. Um, and there are, you know, there are a bunch of different answers to that. Um, we did, we very deliberately did not. I think people would think that it's like, well, of course you're using aluminum. Like you're a bunch of giant people and ex-sun people. Like, you know, what else do you know? It's like, well, no, no, no. Actually, we were very deliberate about that decision. We wanted to be very deliberate about that decision and really wanted to kind of look at things afresh. Um, and, you know, one of the things that uh, on, and, and there are a bunch of different angles for this. That, I mean, the answer is, there are a bunch of different reasons. Um, not least, we need to be able to control our fate. Um, and this is a foundation that allows us to completely control our fate. Yes, there are features that we we need. Yes, one of the features is, Adam, the one that you and I implemented. And uh, I mean, and it is true that like, look, I mean, we spent um, a really significant portion of our career solving a really important problem. and it would be gutting to actually lose that solution. <laughs> and Adam, you know, you and I have been talking about this as we get more and more into production, but the work that you and Ben Knacker did to support USDT probes and rust, which we knew at the, at the time, like this is important. Um, and the, yeah, people are asking, wait, 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 what did you turkeys do? So we developed this thing called D-Trace, um, which allows you to dynamically instrument the system. 
And it's been um, it's been ported to a couple other systems. It's actually been ported to Linux, but it hasn't really been, uh, it, it, but um, has not been accepted to say the least. Uh, Linux has got um, Linux has got like four different solutions, each of which does kind of somewhere between sixty to eighty percent of of what Detroit does. Um, and um, we, you know, the ability again, Adam, you and Ben added that kind of early. Um, and I remember Patrick, who's working on Propolis, is like, when is that thing done? Because I need it like yesterday. Um, but boy, as we, and we, again, we knew this, it's not a surprise, but as we have rolled that out, I mean, looking at Allen and Crucible, which is our storage subsystem, and the use that we, I mean, we are using Dtrace all the time on this thing in production to understand what it's doing. And the hell if I'm going to live without that. The hell if I'm going to live without that. And now, even said, I like, I don't think I've ever gone into with a more of an open mind into BPF trace and eBPF as I did when we were kind of doing that process. And uh, it's a mess. It just doesn't solve the problem we need to solve. Like I, you know, I, I'm not trying to disparage it, but uh, the reality is it doesn't actually solve the problem we need to solve. It's got a totally different disposition. It's not focused on production systems. And I need the ability to support a customer at, at our shared darkest hour. And I need the stuff that we've built to do exactly that. So the, I mean... That's kind of maybe a personal reason, but there are were a bunch of other reasons. It wasn't just that. It wasn't just CFS. And you know, one of the one of our colleagues, Laura Abbott, who I know is kind of here in the chat, and and you know, Laura had a real Laura, uh, formerly a Red Hat, um, had a really important observation that, like, hey, just so you know, like if you're signing up to do Linux, you're actually signing up to do a distro, and. I kind of like intellectually understood that, but over the t over time, I I have come to appreciate that much more viscerally. Where the because Linux ultimately is an operating system kernel. It is not. It, it is not I'm waiting usual. for it. I wasn't waiting for you to say it. Was the, the Simpsons meme where it's like, "Say the line, Bart. Say the line. Just say the line. Say the line. Say the line." If I may, I'd like to interject. Um, the um, and so the. Uh, it is, uh, you have to go make not one decision, but all these other decisions because things like the debugger is not, they're not integrated. Libc is not integrated. You got to make a Libc decision. And now you're having a, now it, you're a glibc maintainer. And the, the, you know, kind of as time went on, I kind of, and looking back on it, I'm like, that, boy, that, you know, Laura is really, uh, I think that's kind of coming from her own kiln of pain, and those others uh, who have come from AWS and so on have pointed out, like, no, it is, it is really, really tough. It's burdensome on a team to go do, and with we have so much more in the system. And yeah, I mean, obviously, we are responsible for all the components. And yes, you know, we've got a there's there is an element to which we are always going to have to figure out where we are with respect to our Rust version and our OpenSSL version and so on. So, you know, we, we, yes, we have a certain amount of that we have to sign up for, but what we don't have to sign up for is picking which libc we maintain. Um, and we ultimately, because it's a community we know well and we're able to participate in, you know, Jordan had made this point earlier that everything we do, we upstream. Um, and that's really important to us to be able to not diverge from what the community is doing and you know, you may have heard me say this over the years, but um, the uh, you know we really believe in that. There's a great power to small communities. People in small communities always assume that the larger communities are are in, but large communities. And Steve, I know you know this very viscerally. Large communities have uh, have different challenges, <laughs> and you know, not really concerned about you know 
in a Lumos foundation feud or, you know, I just, there are certain things that we're just don't have to worry about because it is a small community, which we have like a terrific overlap in values. We also knew, I think just to, and, and maybe I'm, maybe we can, maybe we're going to post the already dead. He's, he's already dead from the Simpsons, but the, uh, I also think that, and I talked about this when we talked about holistic boot, we knew we were going to have a very, very, very different model for booting the system. And the, the booting the system, uh, it, this holistic boot and bringing up this kind of lowest layer of platform enablement was going to require some really serious surgery. And you want to have a, uh, a community that's going to be receptive to that surgery. And you know, one of the things we hear over and over again is folks that end up doing a bunch of important Linux work and then can't get it back. And indeed, we saw that, right? We saw that with Chris at Oracle, Adam, and Dtrace, yeah. where Oracle actually ported Dtrace to Linux. And it is done, and it worked, and it was great, and the Linux community had zero interest in it. And this is like and, a decade ago, right? And yeah. even just now, like, you know, y'all put Rust in the Lumos kernel or deeper down in the stack before Linux dipped their support, which is still pretty nascent, right? So like also with the amount of Rust we're using, the stuff we're kind of doing like that, that's an example of a move that we could make that we couldn't have if we went with Linux. Or at least it's totally. much harder at the whim of someone else, like at the whim of upstream. Yeah, and I and you, you know I I think that the um and you know I think that and the point that's being raised in the chat is that the uh, and honestly actually it's funny because Jason King is is raising this point about the the kind of the sabotaging of CFS in Linux, which actually Jason, what was funny is that was happening exactly as we're doing the deliberation, and the funny thing is. It is happening at this moment that my mind had never been more open to running Linux. And as that's happening, Torvalds is issuing these absolute screeds against ZFS that are not well-founded. And I'm like, yeah, okay, this is, thank you. This is a, uh, uh, and then I think ultimately the kicker, Adam, was was, uh, me talking to one of our former colleagues who had gone through a replatforming exercise. Because I think one of the challenges is it's actually hard to find people in the Linux community who have had a lot of experience with Dtrace. It just it, You just don't tend to find it. Um, that people who've got a lot of experience with Dtrace in particular tend to stick with platforms that have it. There's, a, the, the, there's an important truth in there. And so uh, this is, I don't think I'm betraying his confidence to say I was talking to George Wilson, who's a former colleague of ours, Adam, and what the one that you and I both hold in highest regard. And asking George about this replatforming exercise he's gotten. I'm like, but don't you miss Dtrace? He just says, every day, man, every day. <laughs> and and I'm like, okay. And, and the thing is like, George, un, unlike I think perhaps some people, George was, he needed eBPF to work. So he was like going deep on eBPF and he's and going at length about the challenges he was having. So it was not like, oh, well, he just, this person is just like more comfortable with Dtrace and doesn't want to use eBPF. It's like, no, wrong. This person actually has a customer problem to solve and he will do absolutely anything that needs to be done to solve it. And he's being crushed by the inability to solve it. So that's probably too long an answer to that question. He raised another great point in there of the, you know, we had a problem to solve and our problem was not you know, an OS problem, but rather how do we deliver this platform that can provision uh, you know, virtual machines? And the operating system we choose, I mean, the customers are welcome to ask that question, but if they need to know the answer, we've done something wrong. They should be insulated from that decision. And with the timeline that we had, I think unequivocally, 
we chose the thing that would let us go fastest. It might even it might help other teams, but certainly for the team that we had and the team that we could build, it was not even close. We would not That's, be where we are today. It, uh, that is actually a very important point, Adam. I think is that, and I think that, and Steve, I think this goes to like I know you had a reply on that thread about like, hey, this is like this is something that the team was really familiar with, and that it, this is where the familiarity is not like the like a, a fear of change or fear of something different. It's the no, like this is what we're actually fast with, and I think you're Adam, you're absolutely right that we would be, uh, it would, it's just, I, as with many of the decisions we've made, the alternative is too terrible to contemplate. Yeah. Um, I mean, look, it, it's something we were biased. I mean, there, even if there was some bias, it's also like, well, do we take what we know and the experience of the team and write that down to zero? It's like, no, we want to leverage that as best we can. Yeah. And there's also just another question. And I'm, I'm really, I'm sorry to do this. It's like, here we have arrived at open source licensing. How do we get to open source licensing from a, well, all roads I, I, lead here. All, the, all, road, all roads lead here, but the, I do want to make just one point that's got nothing to do with Oxide, and that is this kind of argument that is made by the Linux community about ZFS because of mistrust of Oracle. And to be clear, like you are under no one is claiming that anyone is violating the CDDL by bundling ZFS with Linux. The only complaint would be, the only question would be, around the GPL compatibility. So you're actually there, because Emily in the chat is saying like, I think if anyone had a mistrust of Oracle, it would be me. And it would, I was like, absolutely. Like I know exactly, I have got zero trust of Oracle. Um, again, it's like, it's in part because I, to trust Oracle or even to mistrust Oracle is to anthropomorphize Larry Ellison. So it's like, I actually, I, I, I do, do I mistrust the, 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 the lawnmower? Do I trust the lawnmower? It's like, no, it's a lawnmower. Um, and it, uh, in particular, there you go. Now I really said the thing. Yeah, you can really post it. Um, but uh, in particular, that there is, there is in no way does Oracle have. In fact, what what Oracle had uh, would the real question would be uh, around patent enforcement. And this is the reason that it is not under the GPL is because we wanted a license. One of the reasons, one of the very important reasons is we wanted a license that was very explicit with respect to patents. And if you are a user of CFS, you have a license to the patents on CFS. And if you are a user of DTrace, you have a license to those patents. And that's extremely important. So yeah, they, thanks Adam, sorry. Or just like, it can just be blank space too. You can just like, actually like, you know, I'm really listening to that thing. I swear, he, I, you know, I'm looking at the chat. He said, what line? What, what were we talking about? Why is there a drop exactly. of blood dripping from my nose? Like my ears are ringing. I, what, what happened? Uh, so uh, there were a couple of great, uh, like product usage type questions um, that, that came up on uh, on Twitter and, and happiness and other places. Um, someone says, seems like a cool product. How does this work with software updates? Are they subscription-based? Oh, yeah. Are they free forever? Uh, if the company goes bankrupt, will the software still work? Is the source code open? Yeah, I mean, a bunch of good questions in there. I mean, I would just say on upgrades, I know Emily in the chat had asked this question a little while ago. Emily, I think you got uh, some good answers on that, but I just want to elaborate a little bit that the asking just about upgrade in the abstract, like how upgradable is this system designed to be? And in many ways, we viewed the ability to to upgrade as the most important feature in fact arguably the only important feature um and in fact we if you hear anyone at oxide refer to update update is the minimum upgradable product it, it is is mup uh and uh we 
it is very important for us that we are able to upgrade this. And a lot of effort has been spent on exactly that. Uh, in terms of the the economic model around, I mean, you know, it's certainly it's all open for sure. And it, it uh, it's all out there. Um, I think that, you know, we would, uh, it would be certainly be our intention to empower those customers. Um, and I think that we've always believed that you can cleanly differentiate support uh, from, which is to say the act of calling up an engineer at Oxide and getting support on an infrastructure problem versus uh, availability of updates. But I don't know. Steve, you're not kicking me out of the table yet. So I feel not yet. Like, yeah, I, I I'm, I'm pretty, pretty far away yeah, here. I'm, I'm getting further and further away here. So it's, uh, but no, I feel it's, <laughs> No, that was accurate. Uh, are there plans to open the the web console, or will it be kept closed? We're we're not keeping it closed for any particular reason. We just we'll we're going to look at. I mean, our intent is to open up all the software that is running on the rack. Is the console currently closed? <laughs> yes. Sorry. Yes, it is. Yeah. Yeah, oh. and and it's closed. I think based on basically historical reasons. I mean, the reason why lots of software stays closed. Uh, just because um, of historical reasons and not really being sure what's in the history, but we should just burn down the history and be sure of what's in the content. Yeah, exactly. I forget saying the thing. I should just do the thing. We're gonna like, yeah. yeah we just, you know, Keter suggesting I just open up the console right now. Like, no, we, uh, we will. Our, uh, our 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 main focus has been just recently that we've getting getting our products to market, getting them in the hands of the first customers, getting them successful, and and it is. Only if we are focused elsewhere that we have not gotten to opening up all the software. And I would just say that anecdotally, um, you know, we do have this, we do intend and, and usually do open source our repos immediately, open up the repos immediately. Um, sometimes we keep them closed as they're kind of sketches and it's, we're not really sure what they look like yet. And amusingly, one of the precipitating factors to open sourcing these repos has been just inter-repo, like Git, GitHub actions, oh, yeah. like oh man, like have, like linking to a private repo is kind of a pain. It, it is we'll a pain. Open it. Yeah, we we'll just open source it. I know. I, well, this is actually one of my more viral tweets, which was totally true at the time. Was like the truth is that we we open source our software because it was easier to search the internet than our internal wiki. Uh, which so yeah, there's a there are a bunch of reasons to open source software. Uh, developer velocity is definitely among them. So yeah, we look for us to get all that software um, out and open. And uh, I, I guess we should do I should do do a sweep to see what else. I fortunately I think like Omicron for the reason you mentioned. I think that it's uh, all of that has been biased towards being open because it's so hard to build if it's if it's kind of yeah. half private. Yeah, the only some some folks in chat have noticed that a couple of the networking repos are not open. And we do kind of weird things in order to build Omicron. And some of that's due to, you know, um, both real and perceived concerns around IP from um, some of our networking hardware vendors. But I think that we may be able to move past that. Some of it's just fear about what's in the GitHub history or in the Git history. Yeah, for sure. And uh, the... Uh, do you build your own, your own repos on your own hardware? Uh, we will, Eliana with the answer in the, in the chat, we will real soon now. No, we, um, the reality is that our own hardware has been, um, it has really only been in the last couple of months that we've been able to get full racks together. Just cause, I mean, you go listen to our compliance episode if you want to know that whole adventure. Um, but we are, uh, that is absolutely where we're going. So uh, it will be real soon now. Um, and yeah, exactly. We need to get the CI times down. So uh, we're, we're very excited to go to that. 
So I know there are lots and lots of, uh, of additional questions and we'll stick around to answer them, but I did have one question from chat that I thought would be a great one to end on, which is what part of this journey was hardest? Uh, the scope increase when you couldn't use reference designs, dealing with supply chain, raising money for this kind of startup. Um, I thought that was a great one to, to hear from, from both of you, Steve and Brian, about what's been hardest about this journey. Mm. Mm. Write it down mm. and turn it over. Write it down and turn it over. Yeah, maybe. I, the, I, I've, yeah, I mean, I've, I, you know what? If I got the, if I've got the truth lasso on me, I will describe something. I'm not even sure Steve has heard. This is, I know that I, that I've been, so yeah, I will describe the hardest moment. Do it. All right. Uh, the hardest moment was when we got funding, when we got the term sheet, which is going to, this is going to be, it's going to sound like absolutely unhinged. And I was not ready for this at all. I just did not, I was shocked by this. We got the term sheet, which is great. Like we've been, we've been focused exclusively on this we've been working so hard we've got the term sheet we're doing it we're done we're, you know it's like how would you like that seems like great news and for honestly like the i was and i guess i was like not braced for this but all of a sudden there's this moment i was the it was the dog that caught the car there's like <laughs> oh uh oh shit and, but it wasn't even like, it, it was like worse than verbal. I mean, I, I was like, I was like paralyzed for like a weekend. I was paralyzed and I was actually, were you paralyzed as well? Did we, I, I just, I mean, not, not in the same level of paralysis, but you were definitely, I, I, re, I recall that vividly. Totally. And in part because I knew who we just signed up for. I knew that like all these VCs are like, oh, we don't see there's technical risk here. It's like, there's nothing but technical risk. And it's like, oh, we know you can do this. Like, I don't know that I can do this. And I'm like, I can do this. Like, I need, we need a team to go, to go do this. You know, it's like, there is no way. We have so much to go do. And this is before we had our first employee, our first employees, we knew we were going to get uh, in, you know, God bless you. Um, but, you know, and, and like, they were like, pretty interested in potentially coming to Oxide, but like, they weren't at Oxide. Like, they had other jobs. And like I was, and yeah, Robert was that Robert was the first employee, and the uh, there was a great moment with Robert, and Robert is kind of like inching over the line, and Robert's like, I guess I work here now, and Stephen are both like, you do, I guess you do, I guess you do. It's like oh, a little bit of like, okay, I guess I do. Um, lock the door, lock the door. The and I actually remember like that. I have never felt as paralyzed by work to be done. And I remember I was, I, I, I spoke with my mom and, you know, God bless my mom, super supportive. And, and my mom kind of told me what I needed to hear at that moment, because I actually, and I remember Steve, I, I did this, like you and I have, I have confided basically everything in one another, but this was a moment where I'm like, I really, you, you don't want your, like, you know, I, I just felt like it would be contagious if I went to you and I was like, hey, look, so um, I'm terrified. You'd be like, you, what? You, I, 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 was, I was not expecting. <laughs> right. I, did, I assumed we weren't going to get the money. And now I don't know how to build it. Steve, I don't know how to build it. You'd be like, do you know how what? to build a computer? <laughs> yeah, do you know how to build a computer? Because I don't know how to build a computer. You'd be like, what did I just do? Are you kidding me? And so I was a little bit like, I cannot. 
I, there's a degree to which I and I clearly I didn't totally keep the straight face because it was obviously uh, not to that not to that degree though. But uh, but it got a little bit dark and uh, and my mom was like, you know, you uh, you did it before. I'm like, lies, definitely lies. And she's like, well, think about what we did at Fishworks. But you think about what we did at Fishworks when we were a startup inside of Sun Microsystems, where it's like, no, not the same. And she's like, well, just think about like you can do it. I'm like, mom. I, and I remember thinking like, mom does not know what she's talking about because she's got no idea of how much needs to be done here. And you know, Adam, you had said this when when I, I was trying to when trying to convince you to come to Oxide, and you know, you the way you you. Uh, characterized it was this is fishworks without a net and that is what it was it felt like fishworks without a net and i was really focusing on the absence of the net at that moment i'm like we're looking down uh, yeah i'm gonna look down and i think that i what i had not done is the thing that i had learned early on to do at joint and i would advise anyone to do going to a startup when you go to a startup success is not assured and like you kind of need to mentally come to come to grips with the death of the company and the, which is important, like if the company, because if the company capsizes, it's going to be okay. And like, I found it coming to joint where we learned that very early on. I kind of came in and be like, this is a stable company. And then like on day two, you're like, this, <laughs> the wings are on fire and the, the, the ground is coming up really quickly. No pilot. There's no pilots. Exactly. And the, you know, the pilots are, are in a slap fight with one another. And, you know, it's like one of the pilots is drunk. Oh my God, they're actually both drunk. The, um, and so, like, being able to come to grips with the fact that, like, okay, actually, joint, it, it would be okay. And that actually allowed me to focus on what I need to go focus on, which is go build the team and, and go yeah. do what we need to go do. And as a result, like, we didn't, like, hit the ground. Like, we actually did and successful outcome. And I kind of feel like I ultimately, it's like, it, th th that wasn't the case here. It wasn't like, oh, my God, Oxide's going to die. It's more like, oh, my God, there's so much to go do. And I don't, where do I start? You know, where do I start? And I think that, you know, for those of you have uh, have come to Oxide. I think that like th there's been a variant on this problem that lots of people at Oxide have had. Is that everyone kind of romanticizes the green field, the clean sheet of paper, and it's like for good reason. Like it's it, it, there's elements of which it's like pretty great. It's also terrifying as hell. And when you are looking at a blank sheet of paper, you're like, where do I start actually? And you know, ultimately. Yeah, obviously got over it and and got my legs underneath me and in part because we you know thank you robert as employee number one but also thank you the the all of the you know as you i think aaron levy had this line about you know before we had 10 employees like every employee was this hard, i mean it was so hard to get every employee in there. and then when you get that the, you get that 10th employee and all of a sudden it feels like oh this is like this is not a suicide mission. This is like actually like, okay, this is like actually like a real company. And it, feel, it has this feeling of stability. And at 20, you're like, we're huge. at 20, you're like, you're huge. And then, yeah. So the, I think it becomes a lot easier to get new employees in the door. But then I, but I, I think that that, that challenge of the, the daunting challenge of the clean sheet of paper is not one that really goes away. And I know that for a bunch of folks that came to Oxide and would have this moment of like, I'm at my dream job. Like, why am I feeling like so overwhelmed by this freedom that I have always wanted? And I'm like, I have been right there with you. I know exactly what you're going through and it's going to pass. And it's like you, because I think that that's the feeling you've got is like, it's not going to pass. I've forgotten how to fly. I don't know how to fly an airplane. <laughs> you know, I, we're taxing down the runway. I don't know what the dials do. I just like, we're all going to die. 
it's like, oh, but that the that's not the gaslight. It's the intercom light. It's like, okay. They, and so I think that that for me, so Adam long answer, but that's, but that was the lowest moment. I think every other, there have been plenty of bullets over the ear for sure. And plenty of crises, but we have endured so many of them together that it's just like, I, I, I'm just ready for anything at this point. I'm just like, not, this is why part like my anxiety level has actually gone down over time even as like sometimes like the stakes have gone way, way up because of the team working together. So there you go, Steve. That's my long answer. It's Let's... good. It's good. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll try and make this one a little shorter, but I think the, I mean, raising, raising for a company that also builds hardware in the post in the, in the cloud SaaS era was, was certainly difficult. That, that, that was a challenge. Um, I think the, I'll give it, I'll give two answers. One is sort of the overall, what was, what, what has been one of the more difficult things in the past three and a half years. And I think my answer to that would be getting buy-in from the companies that we would need to rely on to build the system we were going to go build. So like AMD comes, you know, AMD is an obvious one, but you know, when we start out, we are that exact startup, that half paralyzed startup that you just described. (laughs) And we are trying to not only get the attention of, but like punch way above our weight, which was you know two ounces at the time. <laughs> like we we to be able to get access to the resources that we would need uh, to be able to build this system. And you know one of the things we talk about is that the riskiest one of the riskiest parts of what we were going to go set off and do was to do our own firmware, to rip the BIOS out of the system and go write our own kind of bespoke. Uh, systems layer of software, and we needed documentation. We needed, yeah. you know, we needed a lot from uh, you know folks in the industry that don't always document things the best way. And um, so, being able to to get the level of resources we needed from a number of companies that we couldn't build the system without was um, was stressful. Um, but singular moment just back to you using a singular moment yeah and that was the hardest um for me was was relatively recent it was actually this year and it was um around the banking crisis it was the SVB failure and it was when the bank that we banked with failed and it wasn't it it was not that i was afraid or or over i mean this is not to say i was not stressed out over the over the the midterm the medium term impact to oxide, um, I had absolute conviction in the longer term oxide because we had our you know terrific investors that were coming in saying like we're we're going to make sure that you all can endure and that we're going to make it through this. I think it was um, the hardest thing was all of her all the folks at oxide that had all of these very important questions that they wanted to get answered around what's happening. Yeah. What's going to happen with our money? What does this mean for payroll? What does it mean for, you know, the next three days, three weeks, three months, and them getting all those same questions from their family members and their friends. So was my very low anxiety over this? Was that just, was that uh, exacerbating or was that, was that actually helpful or not helpful? I mean, I don't know. So, I mean, I have said at the time, and I still believe that like the Silicon Valley bank failure is just like, just doesn't feel like, I was saying top fifteen. I'm saying top fifty existential threats to oxide. It wasn't the fa- it wasn't the failure itself. It was just again not being able to help folks at oxide yeah, be yeah, able yeah. to answer these questions and their their levels of stress that was hard to reduce. And That's right. Being right, in right, that right, situation right. over the course of four days that was that was that was toughest. 
It was, it, was, it was actually the team itself. Yeah. More than the, like, you have got your own confidence that, like, yeah, we're going to figure, we are going to navigate. But knowing this. that everyone on the team was. Was dealing with their same anxiety. That's interesting. High, yeah, high levels. Yeah. Very empathetic. Yeah. Not, no way to really diffuse that. Over that period of time in which everything hung in the balance, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, when, like, is SVB going to survive? Are they going to get bailed out? Right. Um, and the outcome of that was going to have sort of a, a pretty different set of paths for us over the next six to 12 months. Yeah. Um, but again, with conviction, we were going to make it through and we were not going to, you know, be overly affected that, that inability to kind of help our team well, as, deal with their anxiety. So and part of this, my anxiety was so low. I know I've said this before, but it's like Janet Yellen does not care about any of our other problems. Janet Yellen will gladly like have like a Chelsea O'Nick that can't actually like come out of reset. Janet Yellen does not care. We yeah. will we will die in the wilderness alone. And I'm like, hey, SVB, like Janet Yellen's dialed in on this. It's great. Like I, you know, we've got so many people care about our problems. This is really terrific and refreshing. I'm so used to being like totally alone in the wilderness. But I, yeah, the, I, I, that point about like actually the problem is not that like you got confidence like we're gonna get it the other side there. The problem is that you've got a lot of employees who are like, hey, like you know, my mom just asked me who my bank we banked with, and my dad just asked me who we banked with, and I'm like, do we we don't bank with SVB, do we? It's like no, we uh, no, we 100 do, but like, but we've got some stuff elsewhere. It's like we sure don't. That's You're right. Like, okay, well, um, what's the good news now? What's the it's like well. You, we're paying attention to it. And it's also, we did, we've got actually, on the one, good news, Janet Yellen cares. Bad news, we ourselves had very little agency in that moment. That's right. Yeah. So we're on the other side of that. We are, we're, you know, financially in, in great, uh, great straits for years to come. Uh, and all's well on that front. But it was, that was particularly low moment. Low moment. Um, but I think, you know, on the partner front. Potential investors that treated us shabbily. You have all gotten off easy. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> it was a great answer, and in particular, coming full circle from when deflecting uh, kind of praise to the team to Brian, you talk about some of the anxiety of building the team and Steve taking care of the team. I, I just, I love that. And I would say, as part of the team, we really feel that every day. Well, I, it is ultimately, it, it, it uh, emphatically, it is the team that has done this. And that's part of the reason I think that, you know, I, I just said the jump, Adam, Steve, and are kind of squirming uncomfortably in our chairs when you're talking about us having done this because we really view it as the, it is the broader us have done it. And uh, the, I think the, the only thing that we can really claim credit for is for the initial raise and bringing in the initial folks. And the, the rest has, has been uh, a, a terrific, glorious flywheel. And it is very much included those who are fans of Oxide. You know, I think early on, one of the things we did is we asked people, Hey, like if you want a sticker, fill out this Google form. If you want a sticker, we'll mail you a sticker. And Adam, do you remember that we had like, this is like before the pandemic and all of a sudden yeah, we had like, like, like yeah. we got a stuff like 500 envelopes full of stickers um and i it, the uh we ended up you know uh, the, the, my kids my mom my mom was stuffing envelopes um and i remember the time thinking like man this is how great is it to have a uh just a broader set of folks who are rooting for us so um it has really meant a lot for us um for us collectively us all um, and so thank you for all of you who've been, who've been supportive of us and um, didn't think we were nuts and didn't think we're nuts. Mm. Absolutely. And maybe just the support of one. We all thought you were nuts. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. Uh, I know. So in, and, uh, next week from, uh, you want Brian, you want to tee up, um, the, yeah, next week is going to be, 
next week's going to be amazing. So we're going to have the operations team on here. Uh, in particular, um, we are, the, and we're going to have a bunch of folks up from operations. Uh, in particular, Eric Anderson is going to be here. Um, Eric has been more or less on site on our facility uh, in Rochester, and I, Eric has got some just terrific insight uh, into uh, all of the gritty details to manufacture this thing, and all of the, the terrific collaborative work with our our contract manufacturing benchmark electronics has been terrific um and really uh i'm really looking forward to having eric and team uh cj is going to walk us through i'm hoping see we get cj to walk or cj or kirsten to walk us through the crate kate's going to be here uh it's going to be really terrific so really looking forward to having the uh the ops team in next week thanks guys thanks everyone in chat this is fantastic guys so much fun awesome thank you adam and thank you especially to all of your alts